often here. I don't know if you looked at the, the little names on the top left and the top right on the hymnal, older style hymnals. But uh, David Livingston, uh, the, can we say, pioneer missionary to Africa. Some of his meditations upon what God had called him to give his life to. Trust the Lord will challenge us with those. I wanted to sing that as you will come to Romans 15 today. Certainly fitting to consider something of this missionary apostle and sing of missionary endeavor. So Romans 15, I want to break into the chapter and read beginning in verse 14 and read down today through the end of the chapter, which is where trust will collect our thoughts. So Romans 15 and verse 14. I may just pause. I'm always, uh, well, quite often, but virtually always amazed at connections between our successive readings on Sunday mornings and the portions that we're brought to in our messages. Uh, some of Paul's prayers for asking, requests for prayer for himself, uh, and even the topics, uh, what he mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 3 and what we'll read here today are quite parallel to be sure. But Romans 15 and verse 14. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind, because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel. Not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. But now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to, my, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. I am sure that when I am come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. 
Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, amen. We trust again the Lord to bless the public reading of His inspired Word. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, today we come the echo of the Apostles' words. And Lord, the the theme running through to this one of the last century, two centuries, that have been called to minister in places where Christ was not yet named. Lord, we pray that You might stir in us something of gospel heart and gospel ministry even in this day. Take up the Word and use it in some life. Use it in all of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. As I suggested last time we were together, when we come to the 13th verse of Romans 15, in many ways we come to the conclusion of Paul's argument and we enter into the last section of the epistle. And to again give the broad descriptions of these sections, the doctrinal part, which of course is what so clearly and first comes to our minds when we think of the epistle to the Romans, the practical part, from Romans 12, verse 1, down through this verse 13 of chapter 15. And then we suggested from there forward a personal section of the epistle. You come into chapter 16. Well, that's one of those chapters where you appreciate self-pronouncing Bibles in English. Uh, there's a lot of names there. Uh, a preacher reading publicly could easily be tripped up. Hopefully we'll navigate through those and with some devotional thoughts as well as we progress. But we're coming to this section that we've read closing out chapter 15 today. The opening portion of what we're saying is the personal part of Paul's epistle. It's interesting, we'll mention one or two of these as we go along, but there's obviously parallel in the verses that we've read today and in those opening verses of chapter 1 where Paul introduces himself and then works his way to the theme of the epistle that he so clearly puts, as we've suggested, almost in the form of a thesis statement, and then begins so carefully and systematically to build together his argument. And these arguments perhaps we should review as we come to depart from the main section. What doctrines has he been jealous to put forward? That doctrinal section, why is Romans so prevalent in church history as the portion of word that God has used in calling men to Himself, starting great movements and returning to truth. It's a careful, logical, systematic statement of the Christian faith. It begins with that revelation of wrath, our depravity, our inability to do anything about our depravity and our state of condemnation. To that section, chapter 3, 
as he transitions from the revelation of wrath to the revelation of the gospel, that paragraph of free justification. And then, of course, everything in Christian life that flows from it. So he moves from depravity and inability to free justification. Then those wonderful challenging sections with regard to our sanctification. And then he moves to that hope of glorification. And those tremendous words of the 8th chapter to be sure. And then that, some suggest digression, but not really a digression. It's just a lengthy addition to the, the points of potential debate as he's done throughout the epistle. Well, if we have this assurance of glory... Well, didn't God enter into covenant with Israel? What about that? And then Paul established God's been faithful to that covenant too. You don't need to worry about this gospel covenant. That's all part of it. And then we've been from chapter 12 to the present time dealing with the practical outworkings. Our responsibilities to God. Our responsibilities to one another as brethren. Our responsibilities to the unsaved that are outside. Our responsibilities in government, living as citizens in this fallen earth. Some statements with regard to our mindset in general. Our being indebted and then embattled as we walk this pilgrim journey. And then that lengthy section dealing with one particular matter practically. How do we deal with things indifferent? Things that aren't necessary that aren't black and white in our walk with one another and with the Lord. But now he transitions to, I said, things personal. What I want to do today is just to look at the remainder of chapter 15 and just do so under the title, Paul's Purposes and Plans. Paul begins to speak of what he's done even in this epistle for the Romans. What is his normal habit? And then, as we said, what his plans are going forward. There are five particulars that I want to pull from this lengthy portion that we've read today. They're particulars that apply to Paul in his own experience. Some things, particularly when we come to our second thought today, that weren't true of other believers. They weren't true of other apostles. It was just a particular ministry God had given to Paul. But I say even in that, I think there's food for us, challenge for us all. As I say, we look at Paul's purposes and Paul's plans. The first of these five I want to put before you today is this. The purpose, the underlying purpose that he mentions here is to remind the Romans who have already believed the Gospel. Look in verse 15. He says, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written unto you the more boldly, I've written them more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind. His first purpose is to remind the Romans. To put the Roman believers in mind of the things he's written about. Now, it's interesting and important to note, Paul isn't in any way suggesting that the Romans had been ignorant. He commends the Romans in the opening chapter. He commends the church. them that their faith, their understanding, their outliving of the gospel spoken of throughout the world. So he's not rebuking them. He's almost apologizing when he says here, nevertheless, brethren, 
What does he say that for? Well, verse 15, he says, I'm persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. These are descriptions of a knowledgeable and mature congregation. So he's not writing to, as it were, meet a deficiency. He's writing, addressing people that already know. I'm sure you've heard me mention this text many times. Uh, It's a text that the Lord used early in my ministry to challenge me and comfort me. But Peter, in his second epistle, writes, Brethren, uh, you have no need that I write unto you these things, but I'm writing to you these things even though ye know them. He doesn't hesitate to repeat stuff that they already know. Well, that's what Paul is doing to the Romans. He's writing to confirm them in the faith they already possess. He's writing to confirm them, to remind them, to build them up in that which he's even rejoicing that they put on display that they already possess. And what a lesson that is for us. You ever reach the point in your Christian experience where you think you know it all? Well, okay, you're not bold enough to say I know it all. But I know enough to get to the point that I stop searching. I stop learning. I stop taking on the mantle of being a disciple. I I just coast. That's not Paul's experience. That's not Paul's purpose for the Romans. He's confident in them. He sees grace in them. He sees knowledge in them. He sees the fruit of the Spirit in them. And he says, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you. It's interesting. The word that's translated boldly can also have the idea of being audacious. Everything about Romans is being an audacious epistle. Paul said, I haven't hesitated, I haven't held back from boldly, from putting it out there, this systematic statement of the gospel. There's a lesson for us. We never stop studying. And there's a word I think we, we can sometimes just turn switch. Maybe it's children. They can't wait till they get out of school. And they can be like their parents and just do what they want and never have any people telling them what to do. And then there's no responsibilities and life's one big time off. Oh, and then you get there and you think, man, life was great when I was a kid in school. I had all this spare time and no responsibilities and people brought me food instead of me taking them food. Can I be a child again? So children, enjoy it while you got it. It's great. doesn't last long at all. Um, but Paul's saying here, you're not at a point where truth doesn't matter. We quoted Peter, my comforting verse, if I ever preach on something I've preached on before. I don't cease to put you in remembrance of these things, even though you know them. How does 2 Peter close? But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's an apostle. We grow 
in grace. We're not stagnant. We don't reach a point where we cease learning. And again, started my little diversion about children in school. We, we look at studying and learning as, as work and as difficult and as a, a discipline as it were. Learning should be a life. In a relationship, what we spend time doing is learning the other person. Deepening in our experience of the other person. And this is what Paul is encouraging the Romans, I say, who have already believed in Christ. He's putting them in mind of the doctrines that he's outlined in this systematic theology of an epistle. I can tell you as one who's been in the ministry now for decades, been engaged in teaching theological courses for decades, some of the simple things are the deepest, the most satisfying. Let us, as these Romans that Paul has such confidence in, be reminded, even though we've already believed the Gospel. The second thing I put before you from these verses is it wasn't only Paul's purpose to remind Romans, to put them in mind, who'd already believed the Gospel, but to evangelize those that had never heard the Gospel. Paul recounts his particular calling here as an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was remarkably this pioneer missionary. Paul speaks even about things he wasn't called to do. He speaks here about not building on another man's foundation. Not preaching where Christ had been named. Well, he's obviously not saying it's wrong to preach where Christ has been named. He's writing this systematic epistle to people that already name the name of Christ. To teach them more about Christ. To have them be deeper in their understanding of Christ. So he's not saying that's wrong. He's just saying that's not what I've been called to do. He's been called to be the pioneer. And as you think of that, and of course the clear application for us is just the standpoint of evangelism. We don't have to as Livingston go to a foreign land to find people that don't know of Christ. They surround us everywhere. It used to be the Bible Belt in this area of the country. It was hard to find somebody that wasn't saved, we used to say, sometimes with a smile. People at least had some surface knowledge of the gospel and of Christianity, but that's radically changed in the last generation to be sure. But I say Paul here his purpose to evangelize those who have never heard the gospel. I think it's interesting here when you consider that it was Paul to whom God gave this particular calling. From a, another perspective, if we were, say, in charge, we could easily perhaps make an argument or try and make the case that, you know, maybe Paul should have stayed in Judea. You know, the Pharisees, some of them were converted, we read in Acts, but the Sadducees, these Old Testament scholars, these 
highly intellectual ecclesiastics. That's the crowd Paul was educated uh, underneath and could hobnob with easily. He knew their language. I mean, Peter, he's this Galilean fisherman. Uh, he's among those uh, ignorant and unlearned men. I remember, it doesn't mean they were stupid. It means they didn't have formal education. But the chief priests who had formal education looked at these untrained men and took note of them that they had been with Jesus. But we might think, you know, Peter would be the guy to go into the Greek and Roman world there. And he's a hands-on kind of guy. You don't need to be a seminary teacher to go out there. I mean, think about the Galatians. Think about the Corinthians. Peter could identify with the common man, as it were. And Paul could stay in Jerusalem and deal with the scholars. God sent the scholar to Corinth. God sent the scholar to Galatia. He sent the man to bring truth. And again, it's not that Peter didn't possess it. But I'm saying if you think of the characteristics that Paul brought to these unreached peoples. And I think it just points out how often we distinguish between scholars and workers. And somehow there's this line in between that scholars don't work and workers don't study. We get in those traps and neither is right. Different gifts, different callings to be sure. I remember being touched as a pretty little boy visiting my grandparents. My mother's dad had, I, I think it was a third or fourth grade education. You could meet him and speak to him. He was obviously a bright man, but he didn't have any book learning. I think he was probably dyslexic. If you looked in any of his books and you saw him write his name or any other writing, often letters were backwards and so forth. Perhaps quite frustrated in school, I don't know. But I remember as a little boy, always being taken by my grandmother who you know, did all the work, giving me my bath and brushing my teeth and all that, getting me ready for bed, and I would be taken in to say goodnight to Peepaw. I'll explain that later. Who was supposed to be Pawpaw. My sister messed up and it stuck. Um, but he was constantly sitting on the edge of his bedside with a lamp at night, laboring, I'm sure, through the pages of his well-worn Bible. If there were anyone who would have the excuse, as it were, not to study, he was active in the church, played a role in many practical parts of the ministry, but he gave himself to read the Word, to understand and own it himself. And as we make these artificial lines of demarcation, there are those that do the work of the ministry and, and there are those that study and do the teaching. Well, why was it the scholar that traveled to the unreached places. Did he need that knowledge? Well, of course he did. Because he needed to bring truth to those that didn't possess it. 
Let us be those that mingle, as did Paul, study and labor, understanding and activity. Let us never be content to say, well, I only pursue one. That's not what we find in the church. So we purpose to remind the Romans who had already believed in Christ to evangelize those that had never heard of Christ. And then thirdly, as we read through this section, we see that Paul had the purpose and the plan to minister to the temporal needs of the saints. As you read here this section of Romans, as you read sections of Paul's other epistles, and you read the history in the book of Acts, there was a particular gathering, a particular offering, as it were. Always, I don't know if it's a thing from Northern Ireland or if it's just an older thing that was used here, but people talked about lifting and offering. Every time I heard that, it, I don't know why, it just made me think it, it just seems like there's criminal activity in lifting something. Maybe it's from shoplifting or something, I don't know. But Paul's lifting an offering uh, among the Gentile churches for the impoverished saints in Judea. Paul had ministered in some places that were prosperous. You see, Paul's interaction and care, we've even read there in Thessalonians, he was careful to labor himself even though he had the authority, the right as an apostle to be supported by the churches. He teaches on that in the epistles. But there were certain places where he he did not receive that type of support. He wanted to guard his testimony and guard the testimony of the gospel. He didn't want to look like one of the traveling salesmen slash thieves, whatever else was out there. He was careful, but he was mindful of the needy in Judea. Now obviously, as we look at Paul's life, we look at the teaching of the New Testament, it was not Paul's primary ministry. In fact, when we go to Acts chapter 6 and the whole establishment of the diaconate, deacons within the church to deal with the temporal affairs and needs of the people of God, the, the apostles and elders, well, we see the need of this other office so that they might give themselves continually to the Word of God and to prayer. So it's not obviously Paul's primary task to be pulled aside from the ministry of the Gospel to deal with temporal needs and necessities, but he's not unmindful of them. He's careful to orchestrate the people, to organize the people to meet this need. And it's much on Paul's heart as we read that he's desire is to accompany the brethren. It's even the accountability that's built into these different reports of this offering that was lifted as they carry that with them to Jerusalem. But Paul, I say, had a purpose. He had a desire to minister to the temporal needs of the saints. I talked in Sunday school this morning that exceedingly brief survey of the 20th century Uh, One of the things that was part of the mix and the division between modernistic churches and fundamentalist churches was what came to be known as the social gospel at the turn of the 20th century. A lot of liberal churches were focused on 
meeting the temporal needs of people. There's nothing wrong with that, but they were going to build a new world by these tangible means. I'm, I'm tempted to go somewhere. Premillennialists get a lot of mileage out of blaming postmillennialism uh, for part of the liberal flux. You know, we're going we're gonna to bring in the kingdom by these means and forget the doctrines along the way. Um, maybe not. But I think for some conservative Christians, they carried it too far. It's like any charitable work is going to be identified with unbelieving people. And so we just will focus on defending truth. Some of those people didn't focus on understanding enough truth to defend. It's its own topic. But here's again Paul. Jealous for the temporal needs. Eager that practical necessities, that very temporal work be done as well. We can't make this division and say, well, we leave all that to others. To have a heart for the temporal needs of the brethren. Well, this is something we see in Paul, the Apostle. So to minister to the temporal needs of the saints, the gathering for the saints in Jerusalem. You'll see here, and we won't, well, we'll perhaps mention it a little further in, but the journey to Jerusalem would have significance for Paul, as we'll see. But let us come to our fourth observation in this section. Not only was he laboring to remind the Romans who had already believed in Christ, to evangelize those that had never heard of Christ, to minister to the temporal needs of the saints, but then fourthly, to spiritually encourage the saints. Look at verse 29 again. I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the Gospel of Christ. If you look over in chapter 1, you not need to turn it up, but you're probably mindful of Paul's introductory statements and greetings there. He, Paul speaks about his desire to see the Romans. He's sad that he's been hindered to this point. But he wants to come to bring a spiritual gift to the end they may be established. And he says, that is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. This is really what he repeats in verse 29 of our chapter. I'm sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the Gospel of Christ. Paul's purpose and impact of his ministry would then be the spiritual encouragement of the saints. Again, this is an aspect of Christian experience, of the life of the church that I think we can, in some cases, miss out. Perhaps in other cases, emphasize to the exclusion of other things. We're so tempted to be reactionary and pendulum swing in our ecclesiastical experience. But spiritual encouragement was going to be at the center even of the temporal needs and necessities he was ministering to. And so as we come together, we corporately gather, we entertain visiting Brethren, whether they be visiting preachers, visiting missionaries, 
visiting lay people from other churches. There's spiritual benefit. There's spiritual and mutual encouragement as believers come together as iron sharpens iron as we join in corporate praise. How many times do we well up with tears in this very room as we sing with one another? As we rehearse what God has done for us and our understanding of all that's involved in the salvation of our soul. That God has done this same work in the lives of my brethren. We can bear testimony one with another of how God opened our eyes, brought us out of darkness into His marvelous light, translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. To speak, as Paul phrases it, of the mutual faith both of you and of me. Iron sharpening iron is at the heart of Paul's desire and purpose as he writes to the Romans, as he plans to visit the Romans, to spiritually encourage the saints. Let that be a benefit. Let that be a fruit of our interaction one with another and with those that God brings alongside us. But now come if you would lastly. I think there's a fifth observation we make here. In the closing verses of the chapter, Paul also has a purpose to encourage prayer. To encourage prayer. I beseech you, verse 30, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together Notice how it's phrased. Paul recognizes prayer isn't easy. Prayer is work. It can be very pleasant. Our labors at times can be pleasant and joyful. We see the fruit of our hands. We see success in our endeavors. But often it's toil and sweat that's produced those things. Prayer can be precious. Prayer can be one of the most enjoyable of our experiences on this side. But not always. Same way our other labors are not always joyful and pleasant. That's why we persevere. That's why Paul writes to encourage them. This is necessary. I'm an inspired apostle. I've been translated into the third heaven. I've had experiences that other people have not had. I have had the Spirit of God literally giving me words to write. I have deep spiritual credentials. And I desperately need for you to pray for me. If the Apostle who had all of that experience, all of that mileage, if you will, of growth in grace and in the service of God writes to the Romans. And you think of the spectrum of believers he's addressing. Slaves of Caesar's household. Others mingled in 
Strive. Give yourselves to this labor for me. Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. If Paul needed prayer to succeed in ministry, to succeed in his own pilgrim journey, his own growth in grace, how much more do we need it? But then he said, Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. Paul's journey to Jerusalem was going to be fraught with trouble. It's an interesting part of a study of the book of Acts. There were prophets. Agabus gave a prophecy. Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to bind you in chains like these Bonds that I'm displaying here. Was that really of the Spirit? Was that part of the extraordinary work of God in the early church that we've seen evident through Acts? Paul didn't listen. Well, the point wasn't that what Agabus said was a command of God that Paul was not to go to Jerusalem. It was just an inspired prophecy that there's going to be trouble. It's not going to be easy. And Paul looks around at those that hear this prophecy and why are you weeping? I'm ready to go. I'm ready to die there. It's fine. But he doesn't approach it flippantly. And what Paul asked the Romans to do here to pray for him that he might be delivered from them that don't believe in Judea. His service which he has for them might be accepted that he might come to them in Rome with joy by the will of God, and that they would be refreshed by his visit. Paul wrote to encourage prayer. Well, we have the benefit of hindsight. We can make the easy application. If an apostle asks for prayer, how much more do we need it? But let's make the further application. He asked for prayer that he might be delivered from them that don't believe in Judea. There was a sense in which he was delivered. Their multiplied purposes and attempts to kill him failed. He was delivered from them, but he was delivered into the hands of the authorities who basically rescued him by arresting him. And that set a chain of events in motion that did bring him to Rome but not as a traveling missionary happily on his way to Spain brought him as a prisoner. It's interesting the Roman believers know of Paul's coming. You read in Acts. They go out to meet him at the three taverns on that Roman road. Is it the Via Appia there? I have to check my sources on that one again. I just remember the Appian Way from Latin class in ninth grade. But it's also one of those interesting usages of a term about meeting a dignitary, which we find used again in Thessalonians about meeting the Lord at His return. But Paul's journey to Rome and arrival there was an answer to prayer. But it was prayer that was answered slightly differently than perhaps it had been offered. Was God not in it? Of course He was. Was the prayer useless? 
Of course, it wasn't. We engage in prayer for God to move, for God to act. We engage in prayer for God to give us wisdom to not misinterpret or be discouraged by how He moves or acts differently than we would desire or we would expect. But in the case of all of the above, let us pray. So I say as Paul begins this personal section, we see these little windows, as it were, to his purposes and plans. To remind the Romans who'd already believed, let us be ever deepening in our knowledge of the faith. To evangelize those who've never heard, let us be instruments in that ongoing evangelism to minister to the temporal needs of the saints. Let us be eager. I praise God for your eagerness. Even this offering we're doing for Uganda, ministering to the needs, to spiritually encourage the saints, the mutual faith, both of you and me, knowing that it will come in the fullness of the blessing of the Gospel of Christ. Do you go knowing you'll be blessed? I've taken trips, a couple trips recently that I was tired. I thought this is going to be tough. Last year, my brief trip to Mexico on the heels of another trip. I thought this is going to be a lot. It's going to wear out the body. I came back more refreshed than before I went. The blessing of being with the saints in the midst of it all to encourage prayer. Lifeblood of the people and of the work of God. Well, These are a few highlights I say from this personal section. Paul's purposes and plans. May we each glean from them and may we pursue the same. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask today that there may be spiritual and practical impact as we read of these personal comments of the Apostle. And so grant us wisdom. Grant us even to examine our hearts on all the pieces of what we find Paul, the Roman church, the churches of Achaia, and even the church at Jerusalem doing. And so minister to each need we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen.